Welcome to In Sync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I am your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm Aviv Rubenstein. Linda Ronstadt's 1970 ballad, Long, Long Time, re-entered the cultural conversation in early 2023 when HBO's post-apocalyptic drama, The Last of Us, used it to soundtrack a love story between two unlikely suitors in episode three, also titled Long, Long Time. So how did Ronstadt's hit song end up soundtracking a show about a mass fungal infection? (laughs) Why did it fit so well in episode three? And what did its placement do for Ronstadt's visibility in 2023? All this and the story behind The Last of Us's remarkable standalone episode on this episode of InSync. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So, of you first, before we dive into Linda Ronstadt, the artist, yes, I want to ask you, how did you first become aware of the show or the video game, The Last of Us? Did you play the game? Because I definitely didn't. I had virtually zero awareness of this entity until HBO stepped in. I had slightly more awareness than virtually none, but I'm not a gamer. I do follow movies that are in development and that that kind of thing. And so I had heard that there was like a very famous popular game called The Last of Us that was like essentially a zombie game that was being turned into a movie. This was close to 10 years ago at this point. And I thought to myself, oh, great, that's what we need. Another video game adaptation and another zombie movie. So, like, I'll be first in line to not see that. But in its unlikely and roving journey to our screens in our home, let's say, The Last of Us has defied every odd, including its showrunner, its content, and its cast. But first, let's talk about Linda Ronstadt. Now, Linda Ronstadt is actually one of my more recent favorites. So she is a singer who has delved into many genres over the course of her decades-long career. I think most casual music listeners would remember the 1974 album Heart Like a Wheel and the singles from that album, You're No Good, is a big one. And the title track, of course, too, When Will I Be Loved is a big one. And otherwise, Linda, though, I think is a little under-recognized for her versatility as an artist. And to understand that versatility, it helps to talk a little bit about her upbringing. And uh, so Linda was born in Tucson, Arizona in 1946, and she comes from a rancher family. She is of a a mixed German and Mexican descent, and her cultural heritage really accounts for that diversity of genres that she has explored over the course of her career. Because when she was growing up, she listened to everything like from rock and roll, R&B, gospel, opera, country, and mariachi. And all of these genres have at some point made their way into her music. Her early career, she kind of grew up into like the 1960s folk rock scene, and she played in a band called the Stone Ponies. It didn't take long, though, before Linda became a solo artist, and her very first solo album came out in 1969. It's called Hand Sewn, Hand Grown, 
And I didn't realize this, but it is commonly referred to as the first alt country release by a female artist. So that's pretty cool. And she then released her second album only a year later. And it's this album in 1970. It's called Silk Purse. And this is the album that features the song in question that we're here to talk about, which is Long, Long Time. And what was also kind of interesting, too, that I didn't realize is that Linda allegedly had to really persuade her record company at the time to include that song. That kind of figures for a lot of genre defining or genre shifting pieces of music is like the artist is ahead of the record label who usually wants to play it safe. So like I'm woefully unknowledgeable about Linda Ronstadt and I look forward to like learning a little bit more about her. But like the way that you are talking about her is the way that many musicologists or whatever talk about Neil Young, right? Tons of albums, genre spanning, pushing boundaries. And like we can only assume why Neil Young is on everyone's lips all the time. And Linda is not always. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I mean, she's definitely, um, I think, an underrated visionary as far as uh, a career musician goes. And I think, I mean, I'm speaking very generally, but, and and this is still, I think, true for anyone who is an artist who happens to not be white and male, but when an artist is first starting out in their career, they, at least traditionally, are kind of at the behest of who like whoever is the money maker the people mm-hmm. who have at, at the record record labels people who are are paying for them to to market their music and so it's kind of like it's very traditional story like who whoever has the money makes the decisions and then when an artist kind of like Taylor Swift is a perfect example of this by the time that she switched from her first record label Big Machine to Universal she kind of hit this like point of like she'd saturated so much of ever she was just that famous right. and had that much influence that she could really be the one to call her shots. So and without getting too far off topic, I, I think in, in the beginning of an artist's career can be, you know, they really need someone like in their business circle, like to kind of vouch for them and like convince the record companies to hey listen to the artists they have a vision yeah. like just trust trust your artist but you're yeah right. they're like, risk averse right they don't they want to very take risks at all yeah absolutely and you still see that that's another yeah. subject for another <laughs> another podcast obviously i have opinions on that but um <laughs> to give you just an idea of how prolific linda is because she is still with us, although she is retired. Linda has released 24 studio albums. Holy um, shit. 15 compilation or greatest hits albums. She has charted 38 Billboard Hot 100 singles, 21 of which reached the top 40, 10 of which reached the top 10, and one hit number one, and that is the aforementioned You're No Good. Uh, technically a cover, first performed by D.D. Warwick a decade earlier. When that was super common, right? Getting yes, yes. Art, new artists to cover back catalog artists to like introduce them to everybody. Super common. So today, Linda, as I mentioned, is retired. She has won 11 Grammys, three American Music Awards, two Academy of Country Music Albums, an Emmy, and an ALMA award. Many of her albums have been certified gold, platinum, or multi-platinum in the U.S. and internationally. She has also earned nominations for a Tony and Golden Globe. And likely there will be another Emmy somewhere this season for her. Yeah, I'm super interested to see how that plays out once Emmy season gets around to recognizing Uh, The Last of Us in like a year or so. So in 2011, she was awarded the Latin Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And then in 2016, the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. So that's kind of cool that Latin Grammy came first. And in 2014, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in 2019, she received a star with Emmy Lou Harris and Dolly Parton on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, because at one point, the three of them were in a group called Trio, oh, which is which is pretty cool. 
And I will say, if if anyone wants to learn more about Linda, I highly recommend watching the 2019 documentary Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice, which is based on her memoirs. I had a chance to see it in theaters when it came out. And I think that that is really, for me personally, like the tipping point that got me more into Linda Ronstadt, like beyond a peripheral level, because she is one of those artists that like I personally grew up hearing on the radio because mm-hmm. they play You're No Good, her biggest hits on classic rock radio. Um, she has myriad connections to many well-known musicians from the time, like her work with the Eagles and actually a well-known guitarist, a studio guitarist by the name of David Lindley, who just passed. David was a very highly sought after Los Angeles studio guitarist and a session musician and touring guitarist. He performed a lot with Jackson Brown and he also performed, he, he has a credit on Heart Like a Wheel and, and he and Linda worked together a lot over the course of uh, his career. But anyhow, Linda, as I noted earlier, she is currently retired. In around 2011, she announced her retirement and revealed that she is no longer able to sing uh, as a result of a degenerative condition. It's called progressive, and hopefully I'm not going to butcher this pronunciation, but uh, it, she has progressive supranuclear palsy. And it, basically her voice is uh, degenerating and she is not able to sing the way that she was and let alone really speak very well. But she does appear in the documentary. She is interviewed and it's just like a really moving doc. If you, if you like a good music doc, I recommend it. Yeah. So in 1969 was her first album and then her last album was in 2004, which is a check my math on this 35 year career in which she released 24 albums and 15 compilations. So like, like extremely, extremely prolific. She had uh, more than one Billboard Hot 100 single per year on average throughout her entire career. And like, that's like, you know, Hall of Fame level numbers that she's putting up. Yeah. And you know, she's she's in there. She's literally in the Rock and Roll yeah. Hall of Fame and then much deserved. Another podcast episode at some point, maybe but I'm I'm sure there are many that really delve into just the variety of genres that she has covered. Cause she has released mariachi music. She has a traditional Mexican album from uh the nineties, I'm sure Many will would remember uh, her duet with Aaron Neville called "Don't Know Much." Don't know much. Yep. Don't know all of you. Yeah, the, I mean, her website even says that she has dabbled in light opera. Yes, she has. That's incredible. Yeah. So she has really done it all: tri- rock, pop, Latin, folk, country, jazz, and Broadway. So I think, and that the documentary that I mentioned earlier really does kind of drive that home and definitely worth a watch as far as the song that we're here to talk about long long time it's a love ballad but it's about uh, like the most aching unrequited love so it is basically about like someone saying to you like hold on and don't give up and you're gonna find your love and then she as the subject of the song is sort of singing like no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> if this came out in the year 2003, it would be on the Garden State soundtrack. It's just <laughs> achingly sad and and lovelorn. It's about a great love that just never came together, but it will always be in her heart. And we'll talk about why it works so well on episode three of The Last of Us to accompany this unlikely beautiful love story. But it is a very, like, forlorn, lonely song about just, like, uh, the the most unrequited love. And she really sells it with her aching voice. And this song was originally written by Gary White, who is an artist from Texas that Linda also duets with on another song uh, on Silk Purse called Louise. 
Long, Long Time was recorded at Woodland Sound Studios in Nashville and produced by uh, Elliot Mazur, who was actually recommended to Linda by Janis Joplin. Jesus. The single spent 12 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked at 25. And Linda was actually nominated for a Best Contemporary Female Vocal Performance Grammy for that track. Oh, incredible. Long, Long Time has been covered a whole bunch of times, spanning from set like 1971 to 1998. A few of the artists who have covered it are uh, like Rod McEwen, Harry Belafonte, Larry Santos, and let's see, Jeffrey Jeff Walker, Mindy McCready, and Alana Miles. There are a couple of other uses of Long, Long Time in pop culture, and one of them is in a 1975 episode of The Rockford Files, which I I cannot claim to have seen. It also, the song- Hell yeah, The, the Rockford Files. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the other use was in a more recent piece of media. <laughs> it was in Hot Summer Nights, which I have also not seen. But it is a stunning song and just a perfect, perfect placement. And we will get into how the placement actually went down a little bit further yes. in. Yes. But for now, um, Aviv, why don't you kind of get into The Last of Us as a project? How did how did The Last of Us start? Similarly with Ronstadt, we're, we're going to talk about reinvention a lot in this episode. And so similarly with Ronstadt, The Last of Us went through several iterations, evolutions, reinventions before it got to your screens. It started its pop culture life as a video game. This should not be super mind-blowing because this was a genre-defining video game. It scored 10 out of 10s from five major review sites, including IGN. Its Metacritic score is 95, which is off the charts. And it, it is one of the kind of buzziest, most pop-culturally relevant video games of all time. In the game, you mostly play as a character named Joel, who's a middle-aged smuggler, and he is tasked with transporting a teenage girl named Ellie across a wasteland infested by mushroom zombies. For those of you Last of Us purists, we'll talk directly to the Last of Us purists here a few times. We know that each zombie has a name. Runners, stalkers, clickers, shamblers, bloaters, the rat king. <laughs> Ellie, it turns out, might be holding the key to saving humanity in her blood. Aviv, before we... Go forward. You and I briefly like texted about our individual fears of mushrooms. Yes. So you have a fear of mushrooms. I have a, a very slight fear of mushrooms because I mean, this doesn't extend to foods containing mushrooms. I actually love like a good mushroom pizza and mushroom pasta and pretty much anything containing mushrooms as something to eat. But I have this like unreasonable like gross out phobia of very fast growing mushrooms in nature like if i look at a tree and it's covered in mushrooms i'm like just icked out by it and it also this this dates back to childhood when in in my childhood home in new jersey we used to sometimes after it like say it's springtime and it was just like rain prolifically for like through april or something and then we could wake up to this giant orange mushroom that literally just sprouted up in the front yard overnight. And it just like Horrible. covered so much ground in such a short amount of time. And it was so like gross to look at because orange versus like green grass. And we usually kept the lawn like pretty trimmed most of the time. It was like my parents were very on their like they, they aesthetically they just like wanted to look good so anyway it was such a disgusting contrast and so i remember my mother went out with her garden gloves one day to like dig it up for the third time and she came back in and she was like yeah there were maggots in there oh, and God. it was just like such a disgusting visual that i just never forgot that and and what so watching the last of us has been a slight challenge seeing how mushrooms have like exploded people's heads open 
And that's all. Well, I'm yeah. <laughs> the last of us will, will agree with you and might even say that evolutionarily you are well prepared for the coming apocalypse because you are pr- hardwired to avoid these mushrooms that might be parasites into your brain. In the show, the mushrooms have evolved from the parasitic mushrooms that take over certain plant and animal life like ants and they have evolved to take over humans as well and those zombifying parasitic mushrooms are absolutely horrifying (laughs) it's really terrible i've had multiple people ask me or just ask in general on their instagram stories i want to watch the last of us but is it too scary will i be grossed out and i have taken to responding like look it's ultimately a the, the show and i think also the video game it's, it's like ultimately about human relationships in an impossible circumstance but yes it is disgusting yeah pretty gross um so the game was and still is a massive, massive hit. It was put out by Naughty Dog Studios in 2013, but since then there have been remakes and sequels and and remastered versions and and expansion packs. And so this this Last of Us universe is pretty pretty large, and the fan base is pretty dedicated. I personally know how special the game is, not because I've played it, as I mentioned earlier, but. It is the first game that I remember people promising me was unlike any other game and that even a movie snob like me would be invested in a playable story like Joel's and Ellie's. Did you grow up with video games? I did a little bit. I was never super adept at them. And so I like puzzle games. My favorite video game is Tetris. Uh, which is, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have the same story, but I guess there's going to be a Tetris movie, which like, okay, guys. But uh, uh, yeah, so I lo- I really like puzzle <laughs> games, okay, um, and not so much like shooting games. I'm not very good at them. I get bored. I get bored with video games in general, and it's also like not because I think I would ever be good at them. It's just like it's just not my thing. But it took a long time to bring The Last of Us to the screen. After the game's release and massive popularity in 2013, in 2014, a film adaptation was announced. So it didn't take very long for Hollywood to come knocking on this movement. And the script was going to be written by the game's writer and creative director, Neil Druckmann, who's also a writer and co-executive producer on the show. And it was also going to be directed by Sam Raimi. Maybe Sam Raimi's name gets thrown around a lot for projects like this. He's a horror guy. He directed the Evil Dead movies and the original Spider-Man trilogy. And it was going to be produced by Screen Gems. But after two years, the project gained no traction at all. And then by 2019, it seemed it would was going to be shelved completely. Naughty Dog had a similar issue, by the way, adapting its other hit game, Uncharted, which did wind up a movie, but it took so long to develop the movie that Mark Wahlberg, who was originally eyed to play the street smart young thief, actually aged out and he was recast as like the grizzled mentor role. Imagine someone going, waiting so long that they had to go from Ellie to Joel. <laughs> yeah. So this is where a guy named Craig Mazin comes in. Like the game itself and like Linda Ronstadt, Mason has had an interesting, convoluted road to co-creating HBO's newest hit show, involving quite a deal of reinvention. So previous to this, he created and show ran the HBO limited series Chernobyl, which is super critically acclaimed. It's a dramatized version of the 1986 nuclear disaster based on a true story. And it has a kind of similar tone and scope to The Last of Us. So that seems relatively logical, right? Yes. Wrong. It's not the (laughs) Craig Mazin I know. Okay. Craig Mazin actually got his start in the 90s writing goofball spoof comedies. The first movie he ever wrote was called Rocket Man. It's the movie where Harlan Williams is a janitor and he gets himself sent into space. Did you watch that movie as a kid? No, <laughs> but I see here yes. that he wrote he wrote Scary Movies 3 and 4. And The Hangovers 2 and 3. And Superhero Movie. And Identity Thief. Actually, I, I want to tell you something that before we recorded, I was listening to Craig and Neil 
discuss this episode on HBO's official Last of Us mm-hmm. podcast. And I don't, and I, it was probably Craig who said it. I don't recall which one of them said this, but they're talking about why they like casting comedy actors in dramatic roles because it's comedy actors who really understand the absurdity. Timing. Yeah. Yeah. And timing. And what now this seeing where Craig's resume gets started that actually makes so much more sense tons of sense and he's been friends with like melissa mccarthy since the 90s that whole era of comedy actors he's worked with for close to 30 years that's what he was kind of known for until 2019's chernobyl have you seen chernobyl i have and i was living in asia at the time and it wasn't i wasn't ready for it but i heard i I still don't i still feel like I, I'm not ready for it because it, it, it could shows up as a suggest to watch after the latest episode of The Last yeah, of Us. The last and of I'm us. always like, I should I should watch this. I want to watch this, but I need to be in the right mindset to watch this and I'm not in that mindset yet. It won a ton of Emmys. Yeah, I know I, it's I sh- supposed I to be watch great. It. We'll we'll get around to it. Yep. In 2015 or so, Mason was this established guy. Everyone knew who he was and what his wheelhouse was which was like broad, goofy spoof comedy. And he told his friends, hey, I'm developing this dramatic thing. It's about the Chernobyl disaster. And his friends are like, what are you doing? You've got this career. People know who you are. You're a goofy comedy guy. People get hit in the face and you hear like an anvil sound in your movies. That's who you are, Craig. Why would you take this huge dramatic swing (laughs) when you're absolutely assured to create an embarrassing disaster, Craig? (laughs) <laughs> and there's this tweet i think it's from chris mcquarrie who is the guy who directs and produces the mission impossible movies saying that Mason reached out to him about chernobyl and he told him just like don't do this right like it's too big of a risk don't do this and it, you're gonna bite the hand that feeds you and mcquarrie tweeted about this because they were like eating crow they were like so incredibly wrong about their recommendations to Mazin to stick to what he was good at because Chernobyl wound up being a massive hit. It netted Mazin two Emmys, one for outstanding limited series and one for outstanding writing for a limited series. Like he and, and redefined his career. So now he gets to do this, but kind of whatever he wants. And it seems like what he wants to do is video game adaptations because he's a big gamer. This is why you shouldn't pigeonhole somebody creatively. This is what this entire episode is about. Yes. And the next, okay, well, the next fact I'm looking forward to hearing. Fun fact. <laughs> this is terrifying. This is scarier than The Last of Us, this in my is, opinion. But, but I think that there are elements of this in The Last of Us. Yeah. Fun fact, Mason was also college roommates with Texas Senator and inspiration for the bloater in The Last of Us, Ted Cruz. Was he really inspiration for the bloater? No, I don't think so. Oh, oh. <laughs> I was going to say. He spent his free time, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, just mercilessly dunking on Ted Cruz on Twitter. This is a, a pro tip for Twitter users. Anytime you see Ted Cruz in the news doing something embarrassing, go to Craig Mason's Twitter. It is just great. Double fun fact. Craig Mason once called me, quote, not funny. You? Me. Aviv? Yes. Story time, please. So the way that I became acquainted with Craig Mason is through his podcast called Script Notes. Every aspiring screenwriter listens to Script Notes. He and co-host John August, who wrote Big Fish, talk about the screenwriting business, best practices, et cetera, et cetera. And so I got really familiar with Craig's voice and body of work up until Chernobyl, basically. And they, on Script Notes, used to do this three-page challenge where you could send in the first three pages of your screenplay, and they would read it and give you feedback. And so this was clearly an extremely sought-after accolade, and my uh, writing partner at the time and I submitted a script. We got reviewed, oh my and, God. you know, they didn't love it. <laughs> Craig called it not funny. Which really, really upset my writing partner, but uh, not, not, it's, it's whatever. And you can listen to that episode. It's called Not Safe for Children, I think. It's, it's from a few years ago, but they read the first three pages of a script that ultimately got rewritten thanks to their notes. 
and got my, got me a couple places. So I owe Craig a big thank you. Aviv, I am manifesting for you in the future that you'll meet him on a red carpet someday and he'll, remember when he you won't, called me not funny. Yeah, you won't remember you, but you'll remember him and you'll it'll be this thing that you laugh about at together yeah. and, and and then you like form like a lovely text email relationship, but that's hysterical. I'm fine with that. I I truly do not hold any grudges. I think he was probably right. I think that's the mindset that one needs to have just yeah. just to stay alive creatively in Los Angeles. It was much easier to write off his comments when I'm like, oh, if the guy who wrote The Hangover 3 doesn't think I'm funny and now he's got two Emmys and I'm like, well, shit. Uh, but it would be even funnier if he does remember me. If I run into him and I'm like, you once called me not funny. And he's like, Aviv? Um, anyway, back to The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. In 2018, after the early buzz from Chernobyl was that it wouldn't be an embarrassing disaster for Mason, he was approached by PlayStation Productions to adapt a video game, basically given carte blanche. This is from the Washington Post. Carter Swan, the publisher's senior, the publisher being sony's production company senior producer of ip expansion presented mazen with a long list of sony playstation owned titles the producer saw fit for a potential television adaptation and mazen was confused as he searched the list noticing a glaring omission he said where's the last of us he was disappointed to hear that it was poised to be a feature film feeling that quote it's not a movie and it would be better for tv and this just happened to coincide with the, this was like a year before Screen Gems would lose the rights to The Last of Us having not managed to produce a film. So The Last of Us was at one point positioned as a live action movie to be directed by Sam Raimi, but the partnership ended the year after Carter Swan presented Mason with this list and Neil Druckmann, the creative director of the show, began reconsidering The Last of Us's future as an adaptation for TV. A film no longer seemed right, and he landed on the potential of TV with Sony Pictures Television, and Shannon Woodward, who plays the character of Dina in The Last of Us Part Two, was a friend of Craig Mazin's, and she believed that Druckmann and Mazin would hit it off, and they, she like connected them for a lunch, and... They instantly connected. This was in 2019. And Mason's quote is, a week later, we pitched the show to HBO and that's it. A quick side note, a years long development process is super common for projects of this size and scale. And The Last of Us seems extremely timely in what, what with the global pandemic and what and whatnot. But that doesn't mean that every word of the script was locked three years before. It just means that they decided to develop the show with a specific tone and style and then rewrote the script for the next three years until they could finally shoot it. Your mind is not playing tricks on you when you see things in the show that feel like they've been ripped right from our lives in the last couple of years. Yeah, that didn't strike me as co- as a coincidence. <laughs> no, certainly not. We're going to take a quick break. After the break, we'll discuss how The Last of Us made it to your screens and some of the controversies, some founded, some unfounded, surrounding the show. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Last of Us premiered on January 15th, 2023 to the second highest numbers for a debut in HBO history. I think the first might be House of the Dragon. It stars everybody's new daddy, Pedro Pascal, as Joel, 
and Bella Ramsey as Ellie. Ramsey got her start on another HBO mega-hit, Game of Thrones, but she wasn't the first actor considered for the role of Ellie. The character of Ellie, going all the way back to the game, according to some, is based on Elliot Page. If you look at Ellie's voice, body type, mannerisms in the game, it does bear a striking resemblance to Page when he was still presenting as a woman. So this is from The Telegraph. The franchise was nearly nipped in the bud a decade ago when on the receiving end of a stinging rebuke by actor Elliot Page. Page had been struck by the similarities between their appearance and that of The Last of Us's plucky teen heroine Ellie. And this specifically was in the trailer for The Last of Us that dropped in, I think, 2011. More than a similarity, the trailer for The Last of Us for the PlayStation 3 Ellie was a dead ringer for specifically the character that Elliot played in the 2007 indie comedy Juno, right down to the freckles. And Page didn't hesitate in pointing out the resemblance. He, in 2013, did a an Ask Me Anything Q&A on Reddit, was quoted as saying, I guess I should be flattered that they ripped off my likeness, but I'm actually acting in a video game called Beyond Two Souls, so it was not appreciated. Ellie's resemblance to Paige, I mean, even the name, right? Ellie and Ellen and Elliot. Yeah. Ellie's resemblance to Paige was widely commented upon when the trailer came out, and many gamers assumed that Paige had voiced the character of Ellie in the game. To this day, you'll encounter gamers who think that Paige is connected in some way to the series. But Naughty Dog, the creator of the game, was quick to clarify that Ellie was played not by page but by ashley johnson whose credits include growing pains she was on growing pains um neil Druckmann tweeted quote ellie from the last of us was perfectly played by johnson no one could have done a better job so did naughty dog knowingly lift pages likeness the company's always denied it however the publishers of beyond two souls in the game in which page does act and portrays an orphan with psychic powers they had their opinions too and they were clear that naughty dog should go back to the drawing board and redesign the character awkwardly both companies are subsidiaries of sony so in the final version of the game ellie has been tweaked slightly to resemble ashley johnson okay i can see though where they might draw inspiration from the juno character who is smart-mouthed, scrappy. Even the the red hoodie in the show is Juno's red hoodie. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Um, I don't crazy. I I don't mind it. I don't I don't hate it. I don't think so either. I think I know that there's like legal issues involved, but if mm. they're like, hey, thanks, let's give you a little bit of money. You are an inspiration for this. Like, thanks for inspiring us, and have a nice day. But I know that they can't probably can't legally admit like, yeah, we used your likeness. Yeah, it's a, like a plausible deniability thing that they'll exactly. continue to lead, lean into. And video game purists, I use purists in extreme scare quotes, were up in arms again at the casting of Bella Ramsey for Ellie because she didn't look like the Ellie in the video games, to which I in, uh, encourage people to touch grass. Uh, I'm going to echo that encouragement specifically based on the the tremendous amount of of garbage bullshit i don't people i okay i i'm gonna back up but you remember when the lord of the the lord of the rings like bullshit showed up like on the amazon i did not watch the amazon show very yeah yeah elves can't be black oh yeah elves can't be black like okay why not (laughs) (laughs) they're fictional who's to say yeah okay i just yeah it's (laughs) there's a tiktok that (laughs) <laughs> there's a tiktok that crosses my phone every so often of a guy just screaming is that a black mermaid and you know come on come on folks <laughs> someday i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you about the time that i worked uh as a writer at cbs.com and had to like track people's um reactions online to the new star trek discovery show and there was just a lot of debate over, like, oh, my God, the lead is a black woman. Uh, and it's just the fact that it was a debate 
That's also weird because Star Trek is like a communist show. It's yeah. like a show about communism and people <laughs> still manage to misinterpret it. It is a it, show about a diversity of exp- of life forms and experiences, but that I'm going to just stop there. Everyone should just touch grass. As yeah. you said, yeah. When did Star Trek get so woke? The answer is It always mm, was. Yeah, 1964. Uh, uh, long sigh. Anyway. Long sigh. Continue. But this brings us to episode three of The Last of Us. If we're getting ready to make chuds on the internet angry, here we go. And the third episode of Last of Us is named after our needle drop of the week. Long, long time. Just a quick note. The first season of the show has already aired by the time you're hearing this episode. But if you're trying to avoid spoilers, this might not be the section for you. However, we're not going to do major spoilers, just kind of premisey spoilers. So Joel and Ellie have escaped Boston. Joel's partner, Tess, has been infected with the cordyceps and just self-immolated. And in the game, this level is called Bill's Town segment. This is from Polygon. In the Bill's Town segment of The Last of Us, Joel and Ellie meet Bill in Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is a small town northwest of Boston. And Bill has been clearly prepping for a while having strung up parts of his town with a bevy of tripwires and traps that are made to keep out humans, infected or not. And the area surrounding Lincoln has a ton of infected. So Joel and Ellie need help, in particular a car. And while Bill doesn't have a car, he has parts they can use to fix up a car. So as you may expect, everything goes a little nuts. There's a lot of like moving around the town, fighting infected, getting car parts. It's It's a fun level, right? After some close calls with some infected, the group hides out in a house that belongs to Frank. And this is where they find Frank's body hanging. And we learn that he got bit and that he wanted to die before turning. So Frank is like uh, basically a, a just a dead body character in the game. The show departs from the storyline significantly, more significantly than anything up until that point. And instead, we start the episode with Joel and Ellie and then break with their perspective to flash back to 2003 to the beginning of the outbreak. Parks and Rec star Nick Offerman plays Bill, a prepper, his words, who successfully avoids being rounded up by the jackboot fascist fucks, once again, his (laughs) words. And he lives alone in the small suburban neighborhood. It's unnamed, but it's Lincoln, Massachusetts. Can I, can I tell you a fun fact really quickly that yes, I learned please. about about the jackboot fascist fucks line? Apparently, that line was not written to be dialogue, but it was just written to be something that the character is like thinking as he prepares to to just lead a lonely life in his. Uh, he watches all the like the the quote fascist fucks move out. Um, as because right. we we know that they're going to murder the group of people that they're supposedly moving into like a safer quarantine zone or whatever. But that line, uh, I think Nick Offerman was like, "No, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> say, to say that it. that's too good. I'm gonna say that out loud." That rules. Yeah. Um, he finagles himself electricity and gas. He hunts. He basically like Nick Offerman's his way through the next few years. If you watch Parks and Rec, then it, like it shouldn't yeah. be this shouldn't be a surprising role for Nick Offerman. It's basically like a much more serious version of the Parks and Ron Rec Swanson. character of Ron Swanson. Yeah, I get a little tired of of actors who can only kind of do one thing. Like Melissa McCarthy, kind of just does one thing in every movie, but Nick Offerman just keeps find, finding new ways to innovate, and I am here for it. Mm-hmm. So. Four years goes by, and then in 2007, Bill rescues Frank, played by Murray Bartlett, from the other, other HBO mega hit, White Lotus. He traps him in, like, a like a, a pit, and after deducing that Frank does not pose a threat, he makes him a meal, lets him shower at his house, and then Frank notices the piano in Bill's home, and he and Bill play Long, Long Time kind of in tandem i've been staring at this the whole time is it antique 1948 wow you know how much these are worth currently nothing oh my god it's my favorite
no, thank you. Sorry. Not this song. Not this song. Well, I'm not a professional. Well, neither am I, but... Love will abide Take things in stride Sounds like good advice But there's no one at my side And time washes clean Love's wounds unseen that's what someone told me But I don't know what it means Cause I've done everything I know To try and make you mine And I think I'm gonna love you For a long, long time so there's a, a, a thousand things I want to say about the construction of this scene, because the way that it could play out is pretty hacky, right? If Frank sees the piano in the corner, goes in and just rattles off this perfect rendition of long, long time. But instead, we see someone who is out of practice because he hasn't had a piano in at least four years and who is butchering a song that means a lot to our main character bill and then when bill sits down at the piano he's practiced right he is because what else does he have to fucking do Mm -hmm. but he can't really sing and so what you're seeing is a lot of the what's called the off-screen movie where like the character's lived experiences are on display in the scene without saying i'm out of practice because there's been a zombie apocalypse for four years but you're also seeing that they kind of need each other Frank needs someone to play the piano for him and Bill needs someone to sing for him. It's just a perfectly constructed scene that could be hacky if you don't spend time and and care on it. So at the end of the scene, Frank kisses Bill. They sleep together. And unlike what Frank says in the beginning of the scene, he does not leave. The episode tracks what becomes a long-term relationship where each party helps the other grow in what is an incredibly dangerous time on Earth, and they save each other and challenge each other in unlikely ways. Um, There's one line of dialogue in their relationship, and you see it a little later, that really struck like the most vulnerable part of my heart, where I believe Bill says to Frank, I was never scared until you showed up. And so Bill is a self-described prepper or survivalist. And he's got seemingly a plan for everything, every kind of threat in the post-apocalyptic world. And then he meets someone and he, you, you can tell that he's never had a long, any kind of relationship, really. He's a, 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 ha- a person who's happy to be alone and live his life that way. The beginnings of his circumstance almost kind of reminded me of that of that famous Twilight Zone episode, where um, the the guy with the thick glasses is uh, Burgess you know, Meredith, so, yeah, yeah, who survives the penguin the, from the Batman series. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. And he survives a nuclear bomb, and all he has to do is you know no one's around, and he's just alone and can read for the rest of his life. He's got plenty of food, and then but there was time, yeah. <laughs> so Bill is. To, he reminded me of that guy before the end of the episode, but then Frank comes along and, and it gives him this new meaning to his life that he never saw coming, especially in this environment. And not to get mushy, but I you know I turned to my husband and I was just like, I know exactly what he means. Yeah. <laughs> like, There's lots of tears. Te- yeah, cou- that that line, I was never scared until you showed up. That That totally broke me. And this, the central question of the episode is, what does it mean to live a life, right? And so at the beginning, Bill is so obsessed with his individuality, his freedom, and surviving on his own terms. And by the end of it, he realizes that being a part of uh, having a connection to someone is more important than the number of days that you live on the on the planet. 
as you might imagine, some people were not super happy with an anti-government survivalist in a 15-year same-sex loving relationship. Human Frog Ben Shapiro <laughs> wrote this on Twitter. I wish I could do a Ben Shapiro nasally impression, but I yeah, yeah right. A Ben Shapiro who fancies himself a screenwriter and and is kind of that was his first yeah that was his first tack as a as a in in pop culture was he wanted to be a a screenwriter and like a conservative comedian screenwriter which like that's an oxymoron right Um, but he said he wrote this on Twitter (laughs) no zombies in the entire episode and that the romance between Bill and Frank has nothing to do with the plot of the show it's about two gay dudes who meet have a relationship in which one grows strawberries for the other, and he later called it Brokeback Zombie Farm. Well, I would expect nothing less from a person with the emotional depth of an ant. And considering he's wrong about everything, he's also wrong about this. Because in the video game, it's heavily implied that Bill and Frank had something going on. Back to Polygon. There's actually a note that the player can pick up when they're in Frank's house. That's near Frank's hanging body. It's easy to miss, but in the letter, Frank chastises Bill for being afraid to leave the security of his area and outright tells Bill that he hates him. Bill could have never given Frank the life he wanted to live, Frank says. And in the game, you don't have to give the letter to Bill, but you can. And when you do, or if you do, it clearly upsets him. And Bill says, so that's how you feel? Well, fuck you too, Frank. Fucking idiot. So depending on how you interpret it it seems like bill and frank have a relationship that's more than just platonic work buddies so so the inclusion of the song also despite sentient elbow skin ben shapiro's criticism (laughs) has an effect on the plot too in episode one of the last of us we learned that there's a code on the radio for joel's smuggling buddy who turns out to be bill and frank Hmm. Songs from the 60s mean that they haven't received new stuff. Songs from the 70s mean that there is new stock. And songs from the 80s mean X. Ellie predicts that X means something bad happened, death, capture, etc. But we don't really understand the significance of the code on the radio and the final song until we hear the beautiful payoff of the Linda Ronstadt needle drop as Joel and Ellie drive off with supplies at the end of the episode with the letter from bill explaining that caring for frank gave his life a purpose and without spoiling too much it might be nice to talk about what that song could represent for uh, ellie and joel because joel has lost someone he's lost his 14 year old daughter in the very beginning of the apocalypse and He's shut himself off with, I guess you could say, the exception of Tess, but... How does he get repaid for that? Mm -hmm. And on the show, he and Tess, they clearly have some kind of loving relationship that has still, like, heavily armed walls around each of their hearts. Like, they've both lost a lot, but they're trying to be as close to each other as they can in this world where you could lose anyone at any second for any number of reasons. And so he's just lost somebody, Joel, because Tess, as we said earlier, self-immolates after being infected and now is kind of faced with the prospect of having to spend close personal time with another 14-year-old girl who, like it or not, will remind him of his daughter. And before Ellie comes along, Joel is essentially longing in the way that Linda Ronstadt's song, like, Long, Long Time, describes longing for someone who he will never have again. Not in a lover relationship, but in a different parent-child. Like a familial relationship. In a familial yeah. relationship. And this is just my read. I have not read any a dissection of of uh, from any creators, but this is just my read on how the song kind of applies to um, the uh, father daughter. I think that's completely accurate. Just look at the first line of the song, which is "Love will abide." Right? It just keeps going on, no matter whether the person is there with you or not. And 
the question is whether Joel is going to allow himself to be hurt again because he's still loving the people who are gone for a long, long time. And as we'll see actually later in the series, Ellie has similar terror around losing people in her life, even though she has lived a much shorter period of time and has not experienced life outside of the apocalypse. Fun fact, that episode that we're referring to where we see Ellie's backstory was an expansion pack that they sold for the game about a year after it came out. So it is very in keeping with the uh, game. Um, But the interesting thing that writer, showrunner Craig Mazin does and Neil Druckmann do for this episode is they completely upend Bill's character, not in the way that you know chuds on the internet are saying well he wasn't gay and he wasn't but they make him someone who understands you know in the in the game frank leaves bill because because bill refused to open himself up and they ask themselves well why not what what is the harm in in teaching someone about reinvention and love and i think that that comes a lot from the path that it took to get this show made to get Craig Mazin to where he is. I think reinvention is a big theme in all of their careers. And so why not? Absolutely. No, I, I love that read. Linda has a a similar, I mean, I, I think a bit more under the radar than say the ultimate pop queen of reinvention like Madonna. Like when you talk about uh, pop singers or just singers in general, and then you talk about reinventions, uh, people always inevitably bring up Madonna, who right. seemingly invented it, but arguably Linda Ronstadt was doing that years, decades prior. So why did they choose Linda Ronstadt? Why not do Madonna? Why not do True Blue? Yeah. So Craig Mazin, he wanted a song that would not be an obvious song. He didn't want something that would be too syrupy, maudlin, or known. And speaking to IndieWire about the song choice, he said, uh, I had the thought that this would happen, that there was a song that would be played, and we would be surprised by who was good at it and who was bad at it. He's talking about uh Bill and Frank when they first sit down to play the song on the piano. He said, I remember saying to to Neil, I'm not sure what the song is. I just know that it has to be this incredibly sad song about yearning for love and never getting love and just making your peace with the fact that you'll always be alone. But it can't be on the nose and it can't be a song that we all know. So Craig texts his buddy, Seth Rudesky, who is like a Broadway pillar and he hosts a show on Sirius XM's on Broadway. He's like a like a figure on Sirius XM's channel on Broadway. Seth Rudetsky has actually been a guest multiple times on Craig Mazin's podcast, Script Notes. Too. Cool, cool. They're like buds from way back. Cool, yeah. So he goes to Rudetsky for a song suggestion, basically. And he described what he needed. And it ended up being Long, Long Time by Linda Ronstadt. And Craig says um, in this interview with IndieWire, oh, I kind of remember that song. I played it and it was like, oh, yep. Oh, my. There it is. And he adds, the whole idea was to hit the highlights of moments in your life where love means something different. Mason initially, he wanted Bill and Frank to connect through a song about lonely heartache and Quote, making your peace with the fact that you'll always be alone. So it sounds like they went through Rudetsky and Mazin. They went through a couple of other thoughts, like, I guess Mazin wanted a show tune, like, I Miss the Music from the 2006 musical Curtains. Rudetsky then suggested her face from 1961's Carnival, which Mazin really liked, but then discovered that the scenario involved a closeted man singing to an openly gay man. Then Rudesky suggested Long, Long Time because he felt the lyrics represented a lack of acknowledgement from one's love. And the song exhibits themes of unfulfilled love and how time heals wounds. It seems like the the entire exchange took about 30 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I can't personally comment too much on the songs that sounds like allegedly were first suggested because I know very little about Broadway 
musicals. And that's just a blind spot for me personally. But the moment where you first hear the two, it's funny, there's sort of a, uh, a fun fact about Murray Bartlett, who plays Frank. And Murray is actually like a great piano player and a great singer. And so to do this scene, he had to play a man like you were saying earlier, who hasn't sat at a piano for a long, long time and actually like really butcher uh, the delivery of Linda Ronstadt's song. But in reality, like Murray Bartlett could probably play the shit out of that song. Yeah. And when you have unconscious competence of, of that level, it's like very difficult to play like you have mittens on your hands. Yes. Bill and Frank's relationship is is beautifully echoed in the lyrics. And I wanted to just read those lyrics out real quick. Love will abide, take things in stride. Sounds like good advice, but there's no one by my side. I'm not going to sing it, by the way, because no one wants to hear me sing. Uh, time Five, washes- six, seven. <laughs> and time washes clean, love's wounds unseen. That's what someone told me, but I don't know what it means. So it's like these two people are are figuring out the love of their life like one day at a time and neither of them probably ever expected to be in a relationship ever again given the state of the world and the fact that they build something beautiful together and they give their each of their lives meaning and go through a typical relationships up and downs because there there are points where they fight and it looks like frank might leave but Ultimately, they work through their issues and they help each other to evolve as people. That's where the aforementioned strawberries come in. And I think that's like a head fake to the game of you're seeing Frank maybe stomp off and leave to then go fulfill the destiny that his that is prophesized in the game. And then it just completely upends your entire expectation of of what's going to happen and and you get like the hot stinging tears as you're watching it so um let's talk a little bit about what the song placement did for long long time in linda ronsat because there there were a lot of articles think pieces what have you that came out after episode three aired that were like drawing comparisons to oh like Linda Ronstadt's going to have her Kate Bush moment and I should just get out in front and say that Linda will not actually see any like monetary compensation from this placement she does not own the rights to long long time she sold off most of her music catalog in 2021 but uh, based on the terms of her original Capitol Records contract, she also never actually owned the master rights for a long, long time. But she told the, or rather, I think her manager told the LA Times in an interview that she is, quote, not unhappy about it. So she's, I think, at peace with the terms of her contract around the song and just glad that it has found a new audience so many years after it came out. This is how I f- feel about the uh, Elliot Page thing too. Like I understand that the show is under no legal obligation to pay. They've already paid out Capitol Records for the use of Long Long Time, but like send Linda Ronstadt a million dollar check. Like you have the money and like just be a mensch, Mason Druckmann, HBO. Like she's uh lifting your show up in a, such a significant way i'm all about kind of even though you don't have to kind of paying people what they deserve just pay her just pay I her sign be a mensch i love that yeah be a um mensch. be a mensch that's a words to live by honestly uh <laughs> so but as far as the the numbers go after its use in the last of us spotify announced that the stream of long long time had increased by 4900% holy shit over the course of the previous week uh, and of course it earned many many comparisons to kate bush's running up that hill and its use in stranger things uh linda herself wrote an email to the la times about long long time 
in The Last of Us. Uh, she wrote how she doesn't follow social media very much or the streaming services, but she found out about its use via her manager, John Boyland. Quote, my first reaction was that I was really glad for Gary White, who will get a windfall from this. And Gary White, as it... Good for <laughs> Gary. Yeah, Gary White is the... He wrote this song originally. And she also said that Long Long Time is still one of her favorites. It is really an incredible song. And season two of The Last of Us was confirmed in January. So basically immediately after the first episode was released, they're like, and we're doing a second one. And hopefully by this time next year, we'll have another song to openly weep about. Craig Mazin has scripted the Borderlands movie, which is based on another video game, directed by Eli Roth and starring Kate Blanchett and Jamie Lee Curtis. It seems like Borderlands was supposed to be released in November of last year, but was shelved for the time being. No word really on a new release date, which is probably not a good good sign. And uh, The Last of Us video game remains the fourth best-selling PlayStation game of all time. So this week we're going to go out on the Linda Ronstadt version of Long Long Time that they play over the credits of the epi- of episode three of Last of Us. Um, we'll play them over the credits of our episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can get at us. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and maybe TikTok. We're at Pod. And if you want to shoot us an email, I think we have an email address. Let us know if there's any famous needle drops you want to hear. As always, thank you for getting in sync. We'll see you again after a short, short time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.